that in Surfside, Florida, a condominium named Champlain Tower South collapsed, and in moments, 98 people's lives were, were lost. Uh, they have yet to recover all those people. They've raised the area, it's all cleared off, carried off the rubble somewhere else, and they still have forensic scientists studying the rubble. Can you imagine that? And of course, we're all aware that two nights ago, some horrific tornadoes came through our country. Arkansas had a nursing home hit. Um, Amazon facility in Illinois, a candle factory in southwest Kentucky, and other places. And uh, even around here, trees and things knocked down. And, but the loss of life, uh, especially in Kentucky, but the other places too. Even if one life is lost, the Lord knows. And you know, whenever those kind of things happen, these kinds of events, we're prone to think, uh, now where was God when that happened? Or why did God allow that? Or what's God's purpose in that? I can assure you there are families today in Kentucky and other places that are saying, why God? By the way, where was God when all that happened? He was right where he always is, on his throne in heaven, ruling over the universe. Nothing escapes him. Nothing surprises him. He's in complete control, and, and he, he knows all about it. What we tend to forget is how God looks at human life. It's sacred, but it's also brief. It's like a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. And it's not the end of existence. This life on earth is short, but it's a test. And, you know, the reason I bring these things up is because, you know, we look at scriptures like Isaiah 9-6, which was given in the midst of a national crisis. This prophecy was given when people are looking around going, uh-oh, what's going to happen? Is this going to affect my life? Is the enemy going to invade? That's what was going on when the words were given, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. When Isaiah spoke these words on behalf of Yahweh to King Ahaz and the house of David, it was not clear of whom he was speaking. There were those who were listening going, uh, who is this again? Who is this child? And remember, Isaiah had two young sons, Shear Yashub, whose name means a remnant shall return, and Meir Shalal Hashbaz, whose name means the spoil speeds, the prey hastens. There are several ways you could explain that, but the idea is there. The second son was a newborn. And both sons were given as signs to Ahaz as a prophetic warning to heed the word of God. The Lord had given a sign to Ahaz and to all of Judah prior to that, which read like this, 
Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. That's back in chapter 7, verse 14. Where we're looking today in chapter 9, verse 6, we're still in the same context of what's being said to King Ahaz, this wicked king of Judah, and the people as a whole. In the future, and God didn't say how long that would be, a child would be born of a virgin who will be known as God with us. Obviously, that raised a lot of questions. How can this happen? It's never happened before. And what does it mean, God with us? But we, we look back on these scriptures as we study them together, and we know that this, first of all, spoke of his humanity. The fact that God would be with us is that he would be human and live among us. And then when we come to chapter 9 and verse 6, the emphasis then goes from his humanity to his deity, the fact that not only is he God with us, living among us as a human, but his names remove all doubt that he must be God. It can't be one of Isaiah's sons. It can't be some other child. It must be the Messiah who is God. Yes, Isaiah had these two sons, but this son who is given must refer to the same one in chapter 7, verse 14 known as Emmanuel. So look at all these titles that we've already collected. Emmanuel, and then Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You get the feeling like God wants us to take note of this. Have you, have you get that feeling? That God wants us to recognize there's something amazing going on. <clears throat> so for the next few moments, we just want to look at these titles these names for the Messiah. And our message is simply this, the Son was given is both man and God. It's basic Bible doctrine, but it's the doctrine of the incarnation that God came to become one of us. When you hear the word incarnation, what comes to your mind? What is it? A flower? Okay. Okay. Oh, a carnation. Okay. <laughs> You're throwing me off there a little bit, but hey, I, I get that. Uh, but the incarnation, and I can see how you, you could uh, put that like that. A lot of times we hear words and we think, oh, but you know, it comes from a Latin word to mean enfleshment, or literally to become human, okay? And, and a lot of times I think especially... Preachers and Bible teachers throw these words around, oh, the incarnation, and we just expect everyone to know that it's not a flower, right? <laughs> that it's, it's becoming human. And that's always the emphasis of our time at, at Christmas. Uh, so we're going to look at these four titles. My, I, uh, my outline is exceedingly simple. The son who was given is known as Wonderful Counselor. The Son who is given is Almighty God. The Son who is given is Everlasting Father. And I want you to ponder that. And the Son who is given is Prince of Peace. So let's simply just go through these and meditate on them for our message today. First of all, the Son who is given is known as Wonderful Counselor. 
this verse points to the fact that Jesus came to earth. And the beginning of the verse, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Those first few lines before we get to this title is a reminder that this was a real person, a human being, a person who was to be born. The one of whom the Apostle Paul called the unspeakable gift of 2 Corinthians 9.15. Remember the angels when they appeared to the shepherds in the Gospel of Luke chapter 2? You remember what they said? For unto you is born. Here Isaiah says, unto us is born. But the, the, later on, those 730-some years later, the, the, the angels would sing and announce to the shepherds, For unto you is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. When it says, to us a son is given, this also points to Christ's deity, doesn't it? Not only a child is born human, but a son in the sense of the son is connected to the father. The psalmist put it like this, I will tell the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today have I begotten you. And that messianic psalm in Psalm 2-7, the children of Israel realized this son is no ordinary son. God is talking about his own son, and so he's giving this little inklings of light throughout Scripture in the Old Testament of who the Messiah would be, so that when we come to the New Testament, the light shines clearly and broadly. Jesus is the Son of God. We all know John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, His one and only Son. The Greek word is monogenes, the only one and only, the only one um, given this title. And remember, that is a title that was given to him. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so the idea of God having a son was difficult for the Jewish people at first to accept. And there are people groups today who cannot accept the idea of God having a son. But we're going to see that that son is equal in essence to the Father and that he is, in fact, God. Now, looking at this, this um, title, Wonderful Counselor, let's just zoom in on this for a moment. Some would call this, uh, and use the word, an appellative. I don't know if you're familiar with that word. I don't think we use it very often. But instead of calling it a name, it says, and his name shall be called, it's name in the sense of an appellative or a descriptive designation. It's doubtful that very many people, while Jesus walked the earth, called him by name as Wonderful Counselor. It's very doubtful. It's doubtful that his parents ever said to him, a Wonderful Counselor, it's time to come for lunch. You know, No, I, that's not what it means. The idea is that he would be known as that. In other words, that would be a, a, a quality of who his person is. The 
very words, wonderful counselor, could be translated a wonder of a counselor or a miracle-working counselor, a counselor who has supernatural ability. And I'm sure you're aware that uh, at times, um, wonderful and counselor are even separated as separate titles. You've seen that? In fact, I kind of grew up, um, you know, reading that and thinking that wonderful was separate from counselor. And well, let's just think about that for a moment. They could be, because back in the, in the book of Judges, for instance, remember um, uh, the, the angel of the Lord met Manoah, Samson's father. Remember that story back in the book of Judges? And, and uh, the angel of the Lord, who we know to be the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, because he claimed to be God and he received worship, what an angel, an ordinary angel could not do. He told Manoah, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? Judges 13, 18. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament in 1 Timothy 3.16 said, He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Paul described Jesus in all those terms which together could be considered wonderful. So he is wonderful. But in the Hebrew text, wonderful seems to go with counselor in the sense that describing the idea of counselor. And the word counselor, we know, coincides with the present work of the Holy Spirit on behalf of Christ. Remember when Jesus went away, he was going to leave his disciples, and he said to them, I'm going away. Where I'm going, you cannot come right now. You'll come later. I'm going to go prepare a place for you. But I'm going to send a comforter. I'm going to send a counselor, another word that could be used. I'm not going to leave you as orphans, he said. But I'm going to send the one who's going to be in my place with you. In fact, he's going to do what I could not do while I walk this earth, because he will be everywhere with you always. And so you recognize the Holy Spirit is a distinct person from Jesus in the Godhead, just as Jesus is distinct from God the Father. But there's also a sense where the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus because they're in complete agreement. And so the Holy Spirit was ministering to the apostles the way Jesus would have done. The Apostle Paul put it like this in Colossians, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Well, how is Christ in you? Through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so what I'm trying to say here is this appellative, this character quality, this descriptive designation of Jesus, this title for Jesus connects him to the Holy Spirit as a supernatural counselor that he is doing right now, this very moment in your life. You realize that? The Bible tells us, the Bible tells you personally, 
to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You ever stop and think about that? It's a command. I'm not making this up. Some of you are looking at me like, you are commanded today to be filled with the Holy Spirit. How do you do that? Confess your sins. Anything that's between you and the Lord, say, Lord, even right now, you could do that. You could say, Lord, if there's anything, bring it to my mind. I want to confess it. I don't want anything between you and me interrupting our fellowship. And then you yield to the Lord and say, Lord, fill me with your spirit. Control my thinking right now. Help me to focus on your word. Help me to worship you and speak back to you how worthy you are. And Lord, help me to do your will today and live for you. Are you worshiping right now? Not because I'm up here, but because God is worthy of worship. Are you worshiping right now? Are you thinking about him? Are you filled with the Spirit? Jesus is wonderful counselor through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life right now. You might say, well, I could sure use a counselor. You have one. You might say, I've got a problem, and I don't know the answer. Well, you have a wonderful counselor in Jesus through the, per the person of the Holy Spirit who will take your prayer and present it before the Father. And he will move someone else, perhaps, to help answer your prayer. Jesus is wonderful counselor. He's a supernatural, amazing ability to minister to us in everything that we need. And what makes it even more wonderful, he can do it for an infinite number of people all at the same time. You ever stop and think about that? There's no line to wait in, you know? Have you stood in a line for anything lately? Have you had to stand in line to check something out or to, you know, get through the, the checkout at the store or to fill the gas tank or whatever? There's no waiting for our wonderful counselor. But it doesn't stop there. His name shall be called. His character quality shall be wonderful counselor, but it also says mighty God. Now it's interesting that Isaiah would put it like this because he uses some words that are different than what we would have expected. You notice it's translated mighty God. And have you ever heard in the Bible, God Almighty? You ever come across that? Yes, you know. Sometimes the Lord is known as God Almighty. Sometimes in the uh, Old King James, Jehovah, which is the name behind the idea of Yahweh. There's a simple name for God, Elohim, right? But God Almighty in the Old Testament is one of the early names used for God, Elohim, but El Shaddai. You ever heard of that one? El Shaddai. Someone made a song about it, right? You ever heard the song? El Shaddai. You ever heard that song? It's a, it's a Hebrew-sounding song. And it speaks of how God is the great provider. That's what El Shaddai is. That's not what this word is. This isn't God Almighty. It's Mighty God. And the, the Hebrew here is El Gabor. Very rarely does this ever appear. El Gabor, and it means God the mighty hero, 
or God the mighty warrior. It's not El Shaddai, God the one who can provide everything that we need whenever we need it. It's God the warrior, the God who will fight for us, the God who will destroy evil in the end and remove all the wickedness that just keeps us from enjoying life. It keeps us from dealing with fear at times. It's the kind of thing that causes us to ask the question, why did all those people die in the tornado? What was God's purpose in that? You might have that question. You might have a question similar to that in your life. God, what, why, why are you doing what you're doing? He's allowing a lot of things to go on right now, but he is mighty God in the sense that he is going to deliver us from all evil. You got your Bible, right? Let's turn back to the book of Revelation for a moment. And turn with me, if you would, to Revelation chapter 19. And a lot of times, uh, I don't know why, it seems we live in a time where a lot of Christians are hesitant to study the book of Revelation or to take a position on its teaching. It really bothers me because the book of Revelation is given to us to be understood and to help us live our life and so that we know what God has in mind for the end times. I want to take you to Revelation 19.11 and I, I really want you to, to focus with this with me for a moment because we're thinking about Almighty God, God uh, the Almighty, Mighty God, those kind of uh, phrases. But this is how he's presented in Revelation in chapter 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him, who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, 
And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. I'm not going to stop. Chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Now get this, Revelation 20, verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Now I'm going to stop there, but I just wanted you to get the feel for this, that... What Isaiah described as mighty God, God the mighty warrior, applies to the Lord Jesus Christ because he is the one who will appear at the end of time to bring together all of history and to destroy his enemies and take the beast and the false prophet and even Satan himself and cast him into the lake of fire. I know for a lot of people this sounds crazy and I know when John saw that, He saw it in a vision, and he's trying to describe it to the best of his ability. But this is talking about what the Lord is actually going to do when he brings the the history of human experience together at the end time. He is going to make all things right. I believe he's going to help us to understand why things like terrible tornadoes or falling towers... Remember, Jesus talked about the Tower of Siloam that fell, 18 people, I think it was, or 36 people. And he said, why did that fall down? Because they were greater sinners? And the answer was, no. They fell down because that was part of God's plan. It was really for God's glory. And it's hard for us to, how does that work? But I want you to see, we read in that passage, he's going to be known as God the Almighty, Revelation 19.15. And his name will be called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's called Almighty God in Isaiah and God the Almighty in Revelation. He is the King. He is the Lord. And all glory goes to him. You see, this is what Christmas is all about. Christmas is not all the things the world is talking about. It's about Jesus. He came to earth to be our Savior and to deliver us from all the sorrow and all the evil of this world. Well, I want to take you back to Isaiah. The Bible just goes on and on about all these things. But do you ever think of Jesus as everlasting Father? It was uh, George Frederick Handel who wrote the oratorial that we know today as Handel's Messiah. He wrote it in 1741. Handel was a German-born English composer who studied Scripture 
And did you realize that he put Isaiah 9-6 and Revelation 19-16 together in his song? He talks about his name shall be called Wonderful, right? Counselor, the Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and then what? King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We sang that last Sunday night at the concert there at Cedarville University. And you probably heard it. But uh, did, you, did you know that when Handel wrote that, he wrote it for Easter? He didn't even write it for Christmas. He wrote it for Easter. It has three parts to it. The first part, the birth, the life, the death and resurrection of Christ and His coming. And it's become, you know, the first part is what we recognize at Christmas time. Nothing wrong with that. But he wanted to write about the whole thing that Jesus did, and that's what he did. And we need to recognize that Christmas too. He is wonderful counselor, mighty God, and he's the everlasting Father. How can Jesus be everlasting Father? Does this mean that Jesus is God the Father? No, it doesn't say that, does it? It says his name shall be called. The appellative is, he will be everlasting father. Well, how is Jesus everlasting father? First of all, this is comparable to his title in Revelation 1.8. Do you realize, someone counted up, there's over a hundred titles of Jesus in the Bible. But in Revelation 1.8, he's called the Alpha and the Omega. The A and the Z, if you were going to use our alphabet the first and the last letters of the greek alphabet he's the first and the last of everything he is before everything he's after everything he holds everything but we know the bible also teaches that the trinity is three distinct persons and not personalities please don't ever say that god has three personalities he's not uh, divided within himself but he's three persons who are sharing the same essence. And so there's distinct persons, yet are one in essence, one in mind, one in purpose. Jesus spoke about the Holy Spirit as a person. He used masculine pronouns to describe him, and he talked about the Holy Spirit as separate, distinct from him. He spoke about the Father, and he prayed to the Father. He kept the Father distinct in his speech and talking. And yet at the same time, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. We share the same essence. And that's why we can say the Holy Spirit is Jesus working in your heart right now because they share the same essence and the same mind. There's a Semitic idiom that states, he who possesses a thing is the father of it. You ever heard that? He who possesses a thing is the father of it. Jesus possesses eternity, therefore he's the father of eternity. Remember in the negative side, he said one time to some unbelievers, you're of your father the devil. Why? Because he's the father of what? Lies. So he who possesses a thing is the father of it. Satan's the father of lies. Jesus is the father of eternity because he controls it under his authority. That leads me to my last thought, and that is the Son who is given as Prince of Peace. 
And there is so much material on this, I probably should have made a separate sermon. I hope you're not getting discouraged. But this fourth appellative, this fourth descriptive designation is Prince of Peace, or you could say Peaceful Prince would be uh, an okay translation of that. He's the Prince of Peace, or he's a Peaceful Prince. Looking in the same context, notice the, the verse before we touched on this last time. It's a really strange verse. It's Isaiah 9, 5. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Remember we touched on that? And when it talks about the boot and the garment, those were the spoils of war. And we said that um, because the Lord is the Prince of Peace, He's the King, He's the Ruler, He's going to stop all conflict and He's going to stop all spoiling of the enemy and wars are going to be over. And the point of that verse is all war is going to stop under Jesus and all the implements of war are going to be burnt. And there's other verses that talk about that. This points to the fact that if war ceases, he's the Prince of Peace. There is a prophecy back that Jacob gave. Remember when Jacob spoke about his sons back in Genesis 49.10? I think we studied this recently. I think James was teaching us about that back in the class a couple months back. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. That's Genesis 49.10. That was prophetic of the tribe of Judah, from whom would come Messiah. King Solomon was a type of Christ as a king of peace. You realize Solomon's name is taken from the word shalom. What does shalom mean? The basic? Peace. So King Solomon, his name is very closely connected to the word shalom. And so even in his name, he was a peaceful king and he was a type of Christ. When Jesus rules, I read a little bit about that to you in Revelation 20. How long is he going to rule on earth? How many years? In Revelation 20 says, for 1,000 years. And it says it six times. Six times it says, for 1,000 years. You'd think, after saying it that many times, you know, we, we would think that. But someone said eternity. That's okay, because at the end of the 1,000 years, he's going to lead us into the eternal state. But that will, the eternal state will not be the same as that 1,000-year kingdom. According to Luke 2.14, thinking about the Prince of Peace, a multitude of a heavenly host praised God and said, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, what? Peace among those with whom he is pleased. Paul wrote in Ephesians 2.14, For he himself is our peace. So this title describes his future reign as an age of peace which will give way to the eternal state of perfection. And one thing, I want you to really get this. The time of peace is going to be over the world while there are sinners still present. And we know that because we've already, the next verse tells us it'll be a time of justice and righteousness. 
You won't need to be worried about justice and righteousness in the eternal state because there won't be any sin there. But if you read through the prophets and then you get to what Jesus taught about the kingdom in Matthew 24 and 25, he's going to reign over sinners. And the book of Revelation chapter 20 says Satan is going to be in a bottomless pit for how long? A thousand years. And then he's going to be released. And what's going to happen? A rebellion against God. And he's going to have to put down a rebellion again. That's not the eternal state, beloved. You cannot read that and come away with, oh, that's our time in heaven where everything's perfect. No. He's going to be reigning over sinners who enter the kingdom in their mortal bodies, in their physical bodies. And we will be ruling and reigning with Christ in our glorified bodies. And as you start to put all these things together, it becomes the focus becomes tighter and tighter and tighter. The, the, the title describes this future reign. And just think about, well, turn over, if you would, to Isaiah 11. It's only a couple chapters away from where we are right now. I'm really looking forward to preaching this. But just hear these verses, and you've heard these. Isaiah 11, two chapters away. Verse 6, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's talking about the kingdom. And by the way, in the eternal state, there's no more sea. Isn't that what Revelation 21 and 22 says? So this can't be the eternal state. This is talking about the kingdom, a literal kingdom, the kingdom of David, the kingdom ruled from Jerusalem. And again, the, the prophets just talk about this over and over and over. Hosea 2.18, And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and the war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. Micah 5.5 5 says, The ruler of Israel shall be their peace. In Isaiah 26.3 it says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. In Isaiah 53, 5, it says, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. In Isaiah 54, 10, it says, For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. And before we're done with Isaiah, Isaiah 66, 12 says, For thus the Lord says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. He's talking about a literal kingdom on earth that we are going to experience. You realize if Jesus would come tonight and snatch the church out, we would only be seven years away from a thousand-year kingdom on earth where we will rule and reign with Christ. That's what the Bible teaches if you read what the Bible actually says, that's what it teaches. You cannot escape it. And what Revelation says at the end of the book coincides perfectly with all these things in the prophets. 
I'm so excited to get to somewhere like Isaiah chapter 19. You ever read Isaiah chapter 19? It's a very obscure chapter, and it says something in there that will blow your mind. I'll let you figure it out later on, okay? But I mean, the Bible is full of stuff like that. It's like, what? How can that be true? How, can, how does that fit? Because God has a plan and a purpose. And so going back to Isaiah 9-6, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Mighty God, the great warrior who will bring justice to the earth and take away all evil from his sight. Everlasting Father, the one who holds eternity in his hand, and Prince of Peace, the one who will sit on David's throne and fulfill every promise made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, through Jeremiah and all these prophets. It's so amazing what God is going to do. And that is why we celebrate Christmas, because Jesus came to be our Savior, and he is worthy of our worship. Our summary, the son who is given is known as a wonderful counselor. The son who is given is almighty God. He is everlasting father. He's the father of eternity. The son who is given is the prince of peace. I want to ask you some questions before we, before we quit now. My principles from the prophet are really questions. And your assignment today is to think about these things. I'm not going to say the answers from my perspective, but number one, how is Jesus the wonderful counselor in your life right now? Is Jesus the wonderful counselor in your life? Did you come here today and say, I, I wish I had a counselor? You do have a counselor. The best that you could ever have. And how is that true in your life? Secondly, we know that Jesus is God. We know that. But do we ever limit his ability to help us when we lack faith? Let me put it another way. Does Jesus ever limit himself to move until you pray? Are there times where God refuses to act because you have not prayed? Is that a possibility? Thirdly, does everlasting Father fit your understanding of Jesus? Does it? You ever think of Jesus as everlasting Father? Commonly have that thought in your mind as you pray? Or does that kind of bother you a little bit? Or, we're not confusing him with the Heavenly Father. I hope you don't come away with that. He's not the Heavenly Father. He's the Son. But he's the Father of eternity. And then finally, if Jesus is the Prince of Peace or the Peaceful Prince, then why do we feel turmoil even though we know him as Lord and Savior? You ever feel like that? So what should we do about it? I want you to ponder that, okay? Are the answers there? Is there hope? I hope you see that today. Let's pray together.
Our Father, we bow before you, and, and as we address you as Heavenly Father, we come in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would fill us now. Fill us with the joy and the peace that comes from you. And this Christmas season, Lord, I pray that we will grasp, no matter what our station, our situation, our circumstance, that we will grasp your greatness, that we will lean hard into you and trust you, that we will believe you, that you are able to meet our needs and to do above and beyond what we ask or think. Lord, may your name be glorified today. And may this Christmas season, above all the Christmas seasons of the past, cause us to focus more on Jesus than we ever have. And so may all the glory and majesty be in the name of Jesus today, we pray. Amen.